From Bumble Australia and Shameless Media, this is Love Etc. have you slept with? Why is a woman either a slut or frigid? And why do we still struggle with a woman who sleeps with a whole bunch of men? Welcome to Love Etc. We're your hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, you're listening to Love Etc., a podcast by Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move. On the agenda today, your number and no, not of the phone variety. Today, we're talking all about sex. And to do that, we actually went out and we asked you guys, how many people have you had sex with? How many people have you slept with? <laughs> um, uh, about nine. Around 13, probably. 13? Yep. How many people have you slept with? Uh, none. How many people have you had sex with? Um, two. Really? Like three. Three? Yeah. None. One. 25? Four? One. I think like eight. I have slept with seven? Uh, five. Uh, 38? 38. <laughs> uh, I slept with 15. Nine. <laughs> yep. Zero. Only one. Yeah. None. Okay, mine's one. One. Long-term relationship. One. One. One as well. We're a bit boring, aren't we? Yeah, just one. Long-term relationship, one. Yeah, we're both long-term. So, I've slept with nine lucky men. (laughs) Um, But I think if you can count good ones, probably like four. (laughs) I've slept with about 26, I think. (laughs) Unsure. I have to say hearing those answers is so interesting to me first and foremost because it's pervy and secondly <laughs> secondly because I think people lie about this number a lot and there's absolutely no way to tell if any of those answers were realistic or true if someone came up to you with a microphone because we went to universities around Australia to do this if they came up to you and actually said how many people have you had sex with would you give an honest answer am I by myself or am I around other people you're by yourself um, just yeah. you and an interviewer yeah, I'd probably give an honest answer but only if it was me and someone random who I was never going to see again. Will you give me an honest answer now? No, on this podcast, <laughs> absolutely not. What about you? Uh, I would give an honest answer there. I agree I wouldn't say it on this podcast though because I think if it's just your voice and not your name or your face ascribed to something, it's a little bit different. You do still have that privacy over you and over that number. Whereas if I'm coming out as Michelle Andrews on the Love Etc. podcast and telling everyone how many people I've slept with, it does feel like a super intimate part of my story that I don't want out there. Actually, I changed my answer. I think everybody inflates it or deflates it to kind of hit a middle ground that we deem socially acceptable. Maybe it's because I think my number is so banal. I wouldn't care. So you have the number that people would either inflate or deflate to. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about numbers and when we're talking about sexual history, for example, did you have a conversation with your now boyfriend when you first started dating about a number and what your sexual history was like? I think we did in the first month. We were super transparent and honest about it and I think that's because we're very extroverted open honest personality types where we were genuinely curious and it wasn't an issue he told me stories from his past and I told him stories for mine and there was no jealousy there and 
I would do that, I think, with every partner I think that I've ever dated because I'm just genuinely curious and I genuinely want to know. What about you? Um, I think I'm certainly interested. I I wonder how, how like, masochistic it is, though, mm. because I wonder if there's a certain point where it would bother me, which is stupid because I'm in, like, two minds about this. The first, the first mind, I mean, is that a, a number shouldn't matter. And if I meet somebody in the dating world and I have a conversation with them about this and they say they have slept with this huge group of women, <laughs> What's right? huge? What would you consider huge? Like a thousand. A thousand? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Maybe, like... It's like Gary from Geordie Shore. <laughs> I feel like we can all guess. Like, we all have... Okay. I feel like we all have our handles on what we think is huge. Okay. Well, mine would be if you're 25, if you've slept with 150 plus women, that would yeah. be a problem. Yeah, that for Potentially. me, a problem. See, well, I'm interested in your language now. Just a, it would be a little bit of a flag. I won't call it a red flag, just a little flag waving in the wind that maybe you don't see me as anything meaningful. Okay, so the reason that I'm in two minds about this is because the most reasonable and logical part of me thinks it shouldn't matter. Like, it should not matter. It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Now the irrational side. (laughs) But now that when I get rid of that rational side, because it very rarely pops up and it very rarely exists, (laughs) and I kind of rely on the emotional side, I don't think there's a way that I could say that I wouldn't care because exactly as you say, how do I know that I'm not just a number in a long line of other women? Like, how do I know or how do I know to differentiate myself here? I think it would absolutely, for me, impact my sense of security or sense of confidence Mm. in those early months of the relationship. See, it's really funny. I think it's important to discuss sexual history. For example, if I had a conversation with a new partner, which if Mitch is listening to this, don't worry, we're still very much together. But if I started dating someone new and they told me I've slept with 300 women, I would want to know that because I'd want to know a little bit about their sexual history and their medical history. If you come to, you should come to someone and tell them if you've had a sexually transmitted infection that you will carry for the rest of your life, like herpes, or tell me if you've got genital warts. I know this is taking it down a really clinical path, but that's important. I want to know about your STI history. Yeah, but I don't think that's going to come out in the first few dates, Michelle, do you? Well, it does. It should. If you've got something that could be potentially transmitted, Mm. it's a super awkward conversation, but things like herpes are really common. And I think it's something that heaps of couples have to have very early on that nobody ever talks about. I do think we consider a male sexual history very differently to a female sexual history. And I think it comes down to that age old concept of a woman being a slut if she sleeps around. But I think there is a tiny bit more nuance to it. And when I imagine a guy sleeping around a lot, I feel like we wrap it in this sense that he might just be young, doing what boys do. And at that moment in time where he's sleeping around all the time, he's just a tiny bit lost, but not completely off track. Whereas a woman who is doing that, we tend to consider her in a light that is impulsive, disorderly, uh, reckless. I, I can't shake this image in my mind of the way that we paint these women is if she's always drunk and always very messy and always sort of stumbling. Mm, I agree. I think society has the tendency to look at women who have sex when they're drunk in a very, very different frame of mind. And I think that's such a mistake. But when it comes to guys who sleep around a lot, it's almost like they're trying to find themselves yeah. by sleeping with other women. I am interested in these conversations. What do you think about having sex on the first date? In what way do I think people should be able to do it? Are you personally pro? Would you have sex on the first date? Yeah, it'd be completely dependent on who the person was. I'm going very red right now. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is the worst decision I've ever made to do because I'm so generally awkward. Um, Yes, I would, but it would be dependent on the person. I think it would be for me completely dependent on who it was and if I was really connecting with them in that moment. I'm not just going to go on a date and do it 
with anyone. So if you go on a Bumble date, that's really, really good. <laughs> I was going to say, is this going to attract the wrong kind of person? <laughs> what about you? I am all for it. I think 110%. If you feel comfortable and confident and he's not coercing you to do something you don't want to do, 100%. Why would you not try before you buy? I know that there's still to this day this really pervasive idea out there that if you're a woman in the dating scene, you should be withholding sex for at least three dates or a month or whatever you want to, whatever timeline you want to put on it, because that somehow makes you more worthy to the man. I completely disagree. I think if you are equals and you feel comfortable and you want to have sex with him, do it. I'm genuinely confused about the debate and the fact that the debate even exists. Like generally the sense that I get is each their own, do whatever the fuck you want. You don't give anything away when you have sex with someone. It's a mutually beneficial shared experience. Well, I mean, I guess that depends on the experience if it's mutually beneficial, but But that's what I mean as well, right? If you don't have sex with him early on, how do you know if there's any sexual chemistry there? What happens if you literally date someone for three months or even just a month of your life. A month is a long amount of time. You go on dates, you like him. There seems to be a little bit of a connection and then you have sex and there's absolutely nothing there for him. Or he's a taker and not a giver. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You've just wasted a month of your life. If you did that on the first or second date, it would have been a little red cross in your mind and you could have kept on swiping and moved on to the next one. Okay. Is it not a bit of an overstatement to say it's a complete waste because you're still getting to know somebody and you're getting to know... complete waste. You're still getting to know somebody and you're still making progress as you're getting to know that person, even if you're not sleeping with them, about the kinds of qualities you still like in a person. So I still think there's helpful elements to it. I do think as well that maybe I'm coming to this from a very extroverted, confident perspective. I think I'm a very extroverted person and the people I've probably sought out in my dating history have been extroverted as well. So maybe it's always just been uh, very non-awkward and organic if we have slept together early on, whereas people might not be in my position and someone might be listening to this who is shy and does feel a bit socially awkward and does take time to warm to someone. So I think that's different. In my mind, I'm just like, well, we're both here. May as well test it out early on and see if it's worth it. Because I do think there are scenarios where the intent is there from both sides. Nerves or awkwardness can Mm. absolutely take the reins. When we talk about the idea that giving someone sex, and I am saying that in inverted covers, giving someone sex early makes them less interested as if the magic's being stripped away too early that you need to build up to something exciting. I find really flawed as an argument, right? Because if, for example, I go out and date someone and I'm worried about giving up the magic too early and then we sleep together on the first date and he fucks off, is that not exactly the response that you want? You want to get rid of the jerks early? Like I just fast-tracked my ability to work out if he was a jerk or not. Yeah, well, if he's a fuckboy, you want to find out ASAP. So I don't really see that as a fail. If he leaves after the first date and never texts you again, hallelujah, thank God you didn't waste three dates on that guy who was going to do the exact same thing once you slept with him anyway. Well, that's exactly my point. I think we consider it, with hindsight, a waste of time if you do do all that dating and he ends up fucking off after the sex anyway. But Mm. if that happens after the first date, then almost ideal. Absolutely. And I think this is a really hetero conversation because I do wonder if gay couples even have to deal with this because we're constantly as straight women dealing with the gender dynamics of men dating women and vice versa. Whereas if you're a guy dating a guy or a woman dating a woman, it might just be like, hell yeah, let's just have sex. There's no 
sexual politics that we need to navigate or shitty gender norms or gender stereotypes absolutely what we wanted to do today is we wanted to introduce you guys to someone in this episode whose opinions we care a lot about lauren rosalyn is a senior lecturer at one of the country's top universities the university of melbourne she is also the author of a just a cool seven books same lauren and specializes (laughs) in these sticky fields of feminism sex and dating so we thought who better to throw all of our precarious questions to the first question we asked i'm sure you guys have already guessed it how does lauren feel about sex on the first date We've all grown up in sort of a, a almost a baptism in books, uh, you know, self-help books and how to almost le- uh, drop breadcrumbs along to somehow eventually get the amazing payoff of a relationship and then sex in the relationship will somehow be beautiful and wonderful. If you're horny and he's there and you're turned on, why not have sex? This idea of giving it up too soon also assumes he's got really patriarchal and antiquated views on sexuality and that he'll look at you differently. If he has a good time and you had a good time, is that not enough on its own? You may want to turn it into a relationship, but you also might not. The sex itself might actually have given you enough information to say, I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And I think this is another one of sort of why it really... I find it strange if you're not religious as to why some people save sex for marriage. You kind of want that data up front to know if you're compatible. That's a really bad first night, wedding night, if you find out uh, we just don't work on that level because sex has a whole lot of elements to it that, you know, even really loving a person doesn't necessarily make the sex work. Mm. I think there's also this really bizarre thing. I mean, this is a connection between it, that if you give it up, like you only have one opportunity and once you have sex with them, once you've given something up, the same way, the same idea And that- he knows everything. About yeah, like the walls you. are yeah. down. Yeah, like yeah. you've you've given everything. What more could he possibly want? And you've he got nothing else to offer on the table, which is another part of the sort of sexist undercurrent to this. Is though that's also something we trade mm-hmm. that women trade sex for something from him. You know, now whether that be respect or a relationship that you even the language we use. You know, give up as though uh, you wanted that somehow it was in your best interest to hold on to it. And again, that's underscored by the, uh, the the belief that women's sexual appetites are lower than men's. Otherwise, none of this makes sense. Yeah. It only makes sense if we believe this idea that it's not really something women want, but they have it because of a bigger agenda, relationship, money, security, etc. Something that really frustrates me personally, and Zara and I have spoken about this before, is the idea that you could have 100 dicks once and your vagina is as big as a hallway and you are loose and you're not fun to have sex with. Or you could have the same penis 100 times and no one ever makes that same parallel to be like, oh, you must be so loose and what a gross woman. Where does that come from, that idea of the gross slut who must have sex with so many men that she is suddenly ruined, like literally physically destroyed? So there's a couple of explanations. The first is a thorough lack of understanding of anything to do with female genitals and the fact that they're supposed to expand and then retract again. We give birth. And this idea that culturally, and this is something I wrote and researched about when I was writing on menstruation, culturally we've got this idea, and you see it all the time in sitcoms, where it's celebrated that men have no knowledge about this stuff. You know, A scene I always refer to is a man in an office says to a woman, oh, it must be the 14th, implying, well, it's the 14th, so you must have your period. Now, any woman who's watching that knows it's you're not going to have your period every 14th. It doesn't work on a monthly sort of calendar schedule. But 
there's canned laughter and men are laughing because their minimal understanding of menstruation is validated by that stupid joke. So partly it's about men don't know a lot about. I mean, even women don't know a lot about their own genitals. The fact that, you know, you often have people calling vagina everything, you know, basically the knees down, it's vagina, all <laughs> vagina. So I think there's partly there's that, a lack of understanding. Another aspect of it, I think, is this concept that multiple penises attached to different bodies somehow cheapen her worth, that having sex almost, you know, in quotation marks, indiscriminately, it does a symbolic slackening of her vaginal muscles, <laughs> that somehow there's a symbolic loosening of her. And this goes back to the whole prizing of virginity in the in the ye old days where, you know, men wanted a virgin bride to know that she's been untouched. And I think most, if they stretch their imagination, most people know her vagina is not actually going to be much different. But... It becomes almost a metonym or a symbol of her being sloppy Dirty, and less yeah. less worthy. Do you think this slut narrative is one that actually kind of exclusively exists in the hetero community because of that power dynamic between men and women, or do you think it is universal? Yeah, I think it's very heterosexual, and I, I say that partly because if you look at sort of heterosexual, uh, sorry, homosexual men, they love this term. You know, the idea of a slut is very much a sort of played-up um, promiscuity that sort of has a sexy undercurrent to it that has none of the gendered burdens to it that women have. I've not heard it used in a, in a lesbian context much. I think partly because of this idea of sort of a, a loose vagina and too many penises and sort of that bizarre mm. rhetoric. I think it's also, though, the patriarchal demands that, um, you know, that keeping yourself nice is a virtue, which I don't think you'll see uh, extended too much in other communities. That said, there is a kind of... In some lesbian culture, you often hear the term sort of gold star lesbian, i.e. a lesbian who's never had sex with a man, and that there's a prioritising of your coming to the table never having ever deviated into heterosexuality. So the very fact that even that is considered somewhat desirable in some sectors makes me think that perhaps... Partly you could see that as an anti-men. You could read that as an anti-men statement, you know, that you're so good a lesbian you've never gone to the dark side. Mm -hmm. I think another aspect of it, though, could potentially have links to this idea of um, promiscuity, but probably less so than a heterosexual audience. More from Dr. Rosewarne soon. But first, we want to hear more from the Beehive, which is just short for you guys. Has anyone ever slut-shamed you and how? What's your experience with slut-shaming? I probably went through, because I play footy, so I may have slept with one of the guys from like the men's footy team, um, and I found that there was, I sort of got a little bit of attention from that, that I wasn't really overly comfortable considering I like play footy with these girls. I've seen it being done to other girls, and I don't know, like it's just, my heart really goes out to them, like I feel so bad, and norm like honestly normally in my experience it is like a group of guys who are just like... I don't know, just saying really mean things about these girls. And I'm like, that person is so much more than that, like, one thing they did when they were, like, drunk or whatever. Like, back off. What's your experience with slut-shaming? I feel like slut-shaming's the worst when it's not to someone's face, when it's behind their back and it's not even amongst girls, it's amongst boys. And they think it's so cool in, like, the locker room culture. But I think that it's worst amongst them. I think it's just throwaway comments, um around schools and unis 
Have you ever been slut-shamed? I keep a lot of my sex life private for the reason of avoiding being slut-shamed more than anything, I think. I have experienced it maybe a couple of times, usually guys that are like, how can you get a boyfriend if you slept with that many people, you know? God, some of those stories are sickening. So what we did is we asked Dr. Rosewan why, after all feminism has done for women, we still can't seem to handle a woman who sleeps with a bunch of men. I think there's a number of aspects to this. I think the first is that there is still this stud-slut paradox, this idea that women are still viewed as somewhat cheaper if they've had sex with a whole lot of guys, whereas we seem to still think if that happens to a man, if a man's sleeping around, that validates his worth, whereas for a woman to do it, we still have these internalised values that sex is still something that you give in special occasions and to the right one and that you somehow keep yourself nice. And even if we're not articulating it, it seems to be we've got a right number of partners that doesn't seem excessive. And women have internalised this as well. It's not just men. In fact, women are often incredibly judgy about other women's numbers as well as ourselves. You know, you often hear friends saying things like, oh, you know, second-guessing themselves in terms of a one-night stand as though even their own self-perception will change as a result of, a, of a, an encounter that's not meant to be anything more than a one-off. Do you think it's as simple as well that we still view sex for women as a passive act, that you're taking a man literally on top of you and a woman's just lying there, therefore you're somehow slutty or you're giving it up because you're simply a passive person in sex? So there's, yeah, there's the penetrating idea, the idea that a woman is there to be fucked and that there is an act there that happens to her. So partly that's passive, but partly that's also this understanding that she's almost a gatekeeper and that if she sort of opens the gate almost literally to let a man in, that that is that act there is somehow diminishing of herself and worth and therefore you've got to be strategic about when you do it and this feeds into all kinds of things like sexual scripts where you know the seduction ritual she can't look like she wants it too much because then you know I'm giving it up too easily and this give and take and this sort of dance that heterosexuals go through where you know he pushes a little she resists a little you know usually this is around the first time it happens as opposed to if a relationship is established there's this expectation that she's not to want it too much and Culturally, we talk about this as though men have massively high sex drives and women don't, and therefore women need, you know, roses on the bedspread and, you know, all these bells and whistles. Talk to women, and that's actually not true if you're having an intimate relationship with women. Women know this isn't true, but yet somehow we perpetuate this bizarre notion that men have massively high sex drives and women just give it up to have a relationship because we like the cushy stuff around the edges, which actually isn't true, but we keep saying it. Yeah. When it comes to the word slut, um, and I know for a very long time it's a word that women have rejected, do you think that there's any merit in this idea that we would ever reclaim that word? Is that worth? anything? I'm always a bit funny about reclaiming languages. I think for individuals involved, there sometimes is power in reappropriating a word that's been used as a slur against you as a kind of ownership of it. That said, not everyone ever gets on board with that. So that's the downside is you going around calling yourself a slut, which great, you know, (laughs) big deal. It works in certain communities and certain contexts. Outside of that, people are going to think you're devaluing yourself and that you've got some sort of self-esteem issue that's being manifested through use of the word. And unfortunately, you can never control the audience in terms of how they receive your use of a word like slut. So therefore, I think it has to be deployed strategically. 
Coming up on today's show, a conversation about frigidity. But first, it's time for a Bumble break. Mish, today Bumble want to shine a light on a woman called Christina Chun, who was Wednesday's recipient of the Making Moves Award at the Marie Claire Bumble Glass Ceiling Awards. I love this so much. The Making Moves Award acknowledged an everyday woman doing amazing things and nominations were open to the public through the Bumble app. The winner, Christina Chun, is the founder of Social Enterprise OneScope, a platform for companies, universities and not-for-profits to share scholarships, work experience and training opportunities with students aged between about 12 and 25 around the country. Amazingly, Christina and OneScope raised $1 million in their first year to give 15,000 students skill-building opportunities in the form of workshops, conferences, work experience and scholarships. Christina has devoted her life to improving Australia's education system and helping disadvantaged youth get ahead. To find out more about Christina, the award and the amazing work she's doing, head to the Bumble Australia Instagram page at Bumble underscore Australia to learn a little bit more. Download Bumble right now for free and make the first move. One app, three modes, one mission. According to Dr. Rosewan, a woman can be only one of two things, Michelle, a slut or frigid. Well, part of it is the fact that women can never win, right? Mm -hmm. So under patriarchy, you're always going to have women punished for something. There is always going to be a means to criticise you. And I think that's something women both need to accept and then reject in the sense that you will always hear negative rubbish from both women and men and even that internal, you know, for ex- friends of, and myself included will often talk about how no one has ever said anything hor- as horrible to me as I've said to myself. That sort of negative self-talk I think is part of this culture. But then this idea that women do it to themselves as well as to others sort of makes this a little bit more, a little bit more troubling. But... Another aspect to it is the medicalization of sexuality. So if you go back to old sexology, you know, 1800 sexology, this idea that a woman who didn't want to have sex with a man was medicalized, i.e. that frigidity was a condition, right, is part of this narrative that if you enter a marriage, what you're giving up is sex. You know, yes, you'll clean the house and, you know, bear him 27 children, but you're also expected to have sex with him and not wanting to have sex with him was considered not necessarily unnatural, but something that needed to be treated. And that concept of frigidity goes forward to now where in the right context, you're expected to put out not too much and not indiscriminately, but certainly with your partner, we have a cultural expectation that you need to put out. And this also goes back to pop culture where, you know, the cliche joke for married people, he never gets enough sex. And that only makes sense in a world where you feel he's entitled to it. And he might be a jerk and yet you're still expected to have sex with him every Tuesday or Thursday. All right, Zara, how do we feel about that definition of frigidity? It kind of took me right back to my high school days because I feel like I haven't heard the word frigid since I was at high school, but it rang a lot of bells because I was called frigid a lot at high school. How Mm, about you? I totally agree. I went to an all girls high school and I remember it was often a word used by our brother school, particularly at house parties. Like if you didn't want to kiss someone or if you don't want to sit on a boy's lap, you were automatically a frigid. I think it's a very young term. I do kind of hear it here and there in between adults or in clubbing culture, but I would say that the frigid narrative does die down after you leave high school, where a slut permeates 
all corners of life, all walks of life, regardless of how old you are. No, I agree with that in terms of how we like slut doesn't discriminate and it lives on forever or the concept of slut. I think the word frigid dies. Um, but I think we're talking in a very literal sense here about the concept of frigidity because, because we haven't heard that term in so long. I do think though, our attitudes towards women who don't want to put out or who do say no in those first few dates still exist. And I think what we've done, instead of throwing the word frigid around, we throw the word snob or arrogant around instead. Well, it's so funny. I literally punched the word frigid into Google and it literally means very cold in temperature. So synonyms are bitter, stiff, stony, frosty. It's almost like women are constantly judged at every corner based on how their attitude towards sex is and how it evolves and changes. So if you're not keen on having sex early on, you're suddenly a bad sport, you're completely unsexy, you are the cold-blooded woman who dare never give up sex to the men who want it. It's actually very funny that you say a bad sport. That is a really amazing way to put it because it's like you're not you're not playing on the same team as me now like you've literally just um you've literally just let us both down by saying no like that's the sense that we have about women who don't want to put out it is still always in the back of my mind that idea that I was called frigid a lot when I was in school I was called it so much because I was probably a little bit quieter or more reserved when it came to my relationship with boys and I even think today that if I go out and date or if I meet somebody and my answer is no what kind of person are they assuming that I am you Mm. I can't shake the sense that they'll absolutely think that I have tickets on myself that I think that I am too good for them that maybe I'm a snob who just thinks she's better than everybody else when in reality I'm just not comfortable going further in that scenario well it's so funny because the whole idea of being a frigid is you're supposed to be a better sport and like come on just relax you take yourself so seriously but then you can never fucking win because then if you do relax and you do want to sleep with them it's like well did you have sex with them too soon did you have sex with them too late it's all about giving it up at the exact right time to make sure the man's pleased with you as a woman and you gave it up when you should have and your timing was perfect. It's like fucking Goldilocks with the porridge. Like don't have it too cold, don't have it too hot, got to be just right. And if you dare go either side of that, then you're suddenly either worthless or uptight. The worst part about that is I don't think there is a point where it's just right. Like I do not think that there's an action or a way well, that the a just women right can... point is whenever you want to. Well, but I mean, for society standards, yeah. there's no point where it is just right. There's no point that we consider a woman perfect. Yeah. I did want to bring into this discussion very quickly this idea that we've never used the word frigid to describe a man in the same way that we've never used the word slut to describe a man really but they must exist and I mean frigid in the most literal sense of the word a man who isn't as interested in sex as the average guy must exist we just don't have any space for him in our world yeah well he's almost invisible because it doesn't really matter you don't need to use vocabulary for men's sexual appetites really at all the only thing I can think of is man whore and that's used as a term of endearment or something like haha he's such a party boy when it comes to men who maybe want to withhold sex when they're dating a new woman or don't want to explore that sexual side very early on there is no word for it simply because it doesn't matter we don't ascribe any personality trait to that we don't consider men who don't want to give up sex as stiff stony frosty and bitter we don't consider them at all because it's not an issue i don't know if i agree with that i don't know if i agree that just because Um, that men can be whoever they want to be. And for that, we have no words for it. I do think there's a whole lot of smoke and mirrors when it comes to men and dating. I think that there's a whole lot of faking it till you make it, that if there are men out there who aren't as obsessed or consumed by sex in their early 20s as what we tell them they should be, they're pretending Mm. that they feel like they are less manly and less masculine. And so 
they're pretending. Perhaps. I don't know. I think that we have an open dialogue to the point now where there would be a word for it if that was the case. I don't think every single man out there would be pretending that he's not raring to go on the first date. I think lots of men would be open that they'd want to wait a little bit longer just purely out of what their own desires are and what they think makes for a healthy relationship. The fact that there's still no word and it's 2019 speaks volumes to me. Well, I think the other side of it is right, that that they can hide behind being chivalrous, this concept that they are being like maybe more romantic and taking it slow. I don't think we live in a world where if a man came out and said, I'm not as interested in sex as everybody else, that that would be a guy that we would welcome with open arms. See, I'm not sure. The Bachelor for um, the US Bachelor last season was a virgin and that was really heralded as a great thing for him. It was a bit of a freak show though. It was, but no one came out and called him frigid. That wasn't even a conversation to be had. He simply said, I'm not religious. I just want to wait. And that was totally fine. I want to say when I said it's a bit of a freak show, I don't think it's a freak show. (laughs) I think that it is. He was put there because he because they wanted to sell it on the freak show narrative. I agree there's never going to be another word for, for a man being a frigid, but I think my underlying point here is what do we do with men who aren't as interested in sex? Well, we put them as The Bachelor and we make fun of them, truly. Yeah, well, that's a question you guys can help us sort out. Please come and chat to us. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast or come talk to us on the Bumble Instagram account at Bumble underscore Australia. I think that's all we've had time for today. Love Etc. is a production from Shameless Media. You can sign up to Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move towards friendship, professional and romantic relationships. Bye, guys. See you next Friday. See you next Friday.